we're in the book of Mark today, and then I believe we're going to take a break from Mark next week, which is really exciting. So I will talk a little bit more about that next week. But we are back in the book of Mark today, uh, chapter 9. Verse 30 to 50. It's a bit of a long passage, and so you guys have to stick with me. Mark chapter 9. I ask you guys to have your Bibles and follow along, because it is a long one. So it'd be easier for you to kind of follow along. Chapter 9, verse 30, all the way through to 50. And I'll be reading this for us. This is the ESV version. And just a reminder as I read this, that uh, we are reading the word of God. Verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, verse 37, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for, your in, for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be, to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Amen. All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for uh, following with that passage. Um, I know it's a long one, but I promise that uh, this isn't one of my long sermons. So um, please bear with me for the next uh, half an hour or so. Um, but as always, before I jump into God's word, uh, join with me as I pray for us. A gracious and loving Father, we live our lives day by day. And if we're honest, uh, we are reminded of our weakness. We say that we believe in your son. We say that we're a, fo we're a follower of uh, Jesus. Uh, and yet still, uh, we lack the strength to uh, do what is right and to not do what is wrong. Father, forgive us. Uh, we are here this morning as an acknowledgement that we need you. I pray, Father, for all of uh, my brothers and sisters here and our guests as well, 
that you might give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to welcome in uh, the instruction of the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that what we know not, would you teach us? What we feel not, would you stir up within us? And what we are not, Lord, in your kindness, may you make us. So we give this time into your hands and we pray that you might transform us into the image of your son. Through his name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm sure that uh, many of you guys after lockdown have uh, has ended, um, kept yourself busy uh, by meeting up with a lot of people, um, catching up with friends and so on and so forth. Um, I, I, I myself was in that position, but I think a couple of nights uh, ago, I had the opportunity, uh, which was quite rare um, after lockdown, to just have a free night and uh, sit down with uh, mum and have dinner. Um, and I don't know how it is with your family, but when you when, when I sit down with my mum, especially, uh, she wants to catch up with me and she wants to know um, all about, you know, what's going on in my life. And I, I think that's a good thing. Um, and she started to chit chat about, you know, my life and her life and, and what's going on with this and that. And um, I was eating dinner and so on. And then suddenly uh, the this conversation kind of shifted in a really weird way. Uh, she suddenly asked me, so how big is your church now? And I was like, oh, well, I mean, we're still not meeting in person. I think about 100 or so people attend on Zoom, you know, give or take. And then she goes, oh, have you grown since launch? And I was like, yeah, I mean, we, we have a little bit. Yeah, we, we've had a couple of people join us and, and show commitment to our church. And then she was, she kind of pauses a little bit. And she goes, well, well, then how come I haven't heard anything about your church in a while? How come no one's talking about you or your church? And I was like, well, maybe it's because we're all on a lockdown, mom. Maybe it's because no one, you know, is talking about church because church is in effect, you know, all online. And she kind of pauses and then she sort of says, when are you going to be famous? And I was like, what do you mean? I don't know what you're talking about. And she goes, well, I don't hear about how good your preaching is. I hear how good Paul's preaching is, but I don't, I don't hear how good your preaching is. I don't hear how many hundreds of people you've saved through your preaching or how great of a pastor you are. And it was weird. It went from zero to 100 very quickly. Right? I mean, an innocent small talk conversation uh, with my mom over dinner quickly devolved into a heated argument about whether these things that my mom was asking of me were, were necessary or helpful or even good for a Christian to talk about. And don't get me wrong. Uh, Mum had all the right answers to my pushbacks because I pushed back pretty hard. She, she would say to me, well, what's so bad about wanting my son to be a great pastor who preaches great sermons that brings a great number of people to Jesus? What's so bad about that? What's so bad about wanting my son to be used in a great way by God? You know, this is about 10 minutes into that conversation. Now, as every good son should do at that moment, uh, I held my tongue, I stopped arguing, and I just sat there, uh, ate my dinner, and nodded my head and pretended to uh, agree with her. But, but let me tell you, all throughout that uh, heated conversation, I was very uncomfortable. Because something about what she was saying just, just did not sit right with me. But at the same time, a part of me did make myself wonder... Yeah, it would be awesome if I was known as one of the great pastors here in Sydney. It would be great. I mean, yes, think of all the people that I could reach for Jesus. Think of all the lives that I would change. 
And also think of all the appreciation and recognition that I would receive from people, you know, just as a little bit of an add-on. You know, as I was thinking about that conversation, I thought to myself, see, the the human desire uh, to be recognized, uh, dare I say, to be great, is something I believe we are all born with. All of us want, I mean, let, let me put it another way. All of us want to live a life of significance, don't we? We, none of us want to simply exist, floating around for however long we are, uh, how, however long we are alive and, and, then, and then sort of fade away. We don't want to be forgotten. We want our lives to make an impact. And even though mom could have perhaps, possibly, probably uh, framed it in a better way, uh, she was sharing with me what I'd imagine all mothers want for their children for their sons and daughters to have a great life with great meaning and leaving a lasting and great impact. So so this is the topic that Jesus addresses as well. See, we've got to ask ourselves in this passage today, how does Jesus see this topic? How does Jesus see human greatness? What does it mean for a human being who follows Jesus to be great? Now, straight out of the gate, I have to ask, is it then wrong for Christians Uh, people who follow Jesus, to run hard after greatness. I don't think so. Because nowhere here does Jesus rebuke the disciples for wanting to be great. Right? He doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. Well, then what is the right way for us as human beings or wanting to make something of ourselves to see and pursue greatness? Jesus gives us three lessons here. And if you're wanting to live a life of significance, and I'm sure most, if not all of us, are in that boat, if you're wanting your lives to count, if you're wanting yourself to be the best uh, you that you can be, well, these three lessons are for you. So let's jump right into it. The first point is from uh, verses 30 to 35. Uh, It's entitled, How I See Myself, if you're a note taker. So, Jesus gives another one of his sort of, uh, I guess you could call it private tutoring sessions with the disciples while on the road. Sometimes Jesus teaches to the crowd and other times Jesus teaches exclusively to the 12. So this is what he's doing uh, here, uh, the latter. And he again uh, explains what his real mission on earth is to be given over, to be crucified and to rise again after three days. And of course, the disciples being the disciples, they hear this, I think for the second time, And they don't understand what he's saying. That's in verse 32. And feeling a bit embarrassed, I'd imagine. They they don't want to look a little bit ignorant. So so they don't ask him for clarification. They just just remain silent. So uh, after getting to where where it is that they're getting to, I think it was Capernaum, uh, Jesus asks them, hey, guys, what were you talking about on the way over here? And the disciples seem really embarrassed at this point. Because what, they, because what were they doing? Well, they were arguing amongst themselves which one of the 12 was the greatest. So then Jesus sits them all down and he tells them, all right, guys, do you want to know uh, who is the greatest among you? Well, it's the one who thinks that they are the last, the greatest servant. And to us, we've heard this phrase often, and it doesn't hit us home in the way that it originally uh, was meant to. But it is really a mic drop moment because no one is expecting this kind of answer. 
See, imagine being one of the disciples. You've argued with 11 other of your boys about who has cast out the most demons, uh, which one of us has had the most amount of private conversations with Jesus, who has had the most number of conversions in their own ministry. And then Jesus says, all right, guys, the greatest of Christians is the Christian who doesn't care about being great, but only cares about helping other Christians. That, in effect, is what he's saying here. See, again, Jesus doesn't rebuke the Christians for talking about the topic of greatness. He rebukes them because they misunderstand greatness. They misunderstand how they see themselves. Greatness to the disciples, and very much so in our society and culture, is all about me. Greatness to me is all about how great I am. I am great because I am better than others. That is the worldly standard of greatness, is it not? So I'll give you an example here. How do you know that a particular uh, sports person in their uh, field is the greatest of all time? The, the goat, as people might say. Well, because that person is better than all the rest of the other people at that sport. See, how do you know? Uh, in Formula One, you know, which one is the GOAT? Is it, is it Hamilton or Schumacher? Apparently it's Hamilton, <laughs> but I didn't know that. Um, I'll give you another more uh, uh, a controversial example. How do you know which is the GOAT in basketball? Now, I don't play basketball, but most of my friends do, and they always debate about who is the greatest of all time. Is it Michael Jordan? Is it LeBron James? Who is it? I, I mean, the reason why the debate gets so heated is because the people, uh, the way that people measure how one person is better than other people at a sport, you know, oftentimes changes. But, but the principle is still there. Who is the one person that is better than the rest of them at that sport? That is the question. But here, Jesus completely changes the paradigm that we usually measure greatness. The question is not who is the one person that is better than the rest of them. The real question is, who is the one person that sees all other people as more important than themselves? And I do have to add here, it's not like Jesus is teaching an abstract concept in I don't know, moral philosophy. He is just simply putting words to his actions. He has lived it and he will live it all the way up until his death. If you're wondering what this looks like in the real world, in your own life, Jesus not only teaches about it, he walks the talk as well. That's why even before he starts to instruct the disciples about this topic, he says in verse 31, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. I mean, he adds uh, more to this uh, later on in chapter 10. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus wasn't concerned about whether or not people at the time thought he was the greatest teacher. He wasn't caught up about being famous or influential on a global scale. All he cared about was to serve other people, even if, especially through the giving up of his own life. And I can't help but notice the irony because he did this 
And now he is one of the most famous individuals on earth. His influence is on a global scale. If anyone had reason to boast about their qualifications, their talents, their privilege, it was Jesus. But he didn't. There is a wrong way to see ourselves in light of seeking greatness and a right way to see ourselves in light of this. Here is the paradox of kingdom greatness. The greatest of Christians will think the least about themselves, whilst those who think most of themselves are in fact the least in the kingdom. That's lesson number one. Greatness is about seeing myself rightly. In other words, a great person does not make his life about himself, but about others. See, the question uh, I want to put forward to you guys is, do you want to be the best version of you? Well, Jesus helps us in this respect. The best you is when you think less about you and more about them. I think Tim Keller says it really nicely. He says, gospel greatness is in effect gospel humility. It is not thinking more of myself. It is thinking of myself less. It is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It, 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 it is an end to thoughts such as, well, oh, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? See, true gospel greatness means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. He calls it the freedom of self-forgetfulness. I think that's a wonderful way to put it. Self-forgetfulness. That's, that's the first lesson. Let's look at the second. And he kind of expands on this point from verses 36 to 41. Uh, in uh, verse 36, he, he picks up a baby. Um, in, I think your translation, it says child. Um, in, in the original word, it means newborn, like a child, uh, a child who's uh, very, very young. Uh, he holds him in his arms and says in verse 37, basically, he says this, if you choose to love and care for newborn children such as this child, it is proof that you love and care about me. So that's example number one of, of Jesus's second lesson. And, and in verse 38, John, uh, one of the disciples, probably missing the whole point of the story, as so often the disciples seem to do, he, he suddenly dobs some person into Jesus. I find that really, really odd and strange. He kind of goes, hey, Jesus, um, yeah, there's this guy running around doing all sorts of good things in your name, but they're not hanging out with us. But don't worry, Jesus, we told them off for you. And, and it's funny because Jesus actually goes, no, don't stop them. He calls out this behavior in verse 39. He says, don't stop them. They're doing the same work that we are doing. So that's example number two. Um, let's look at the first example more closely. When we read this here, at first glance, it seems pretty out of place. And, and to be fair, hard to understand as well, because you've got to ask yourself, why is Jesus picking up a baby in the middle of a teaching uh, of a lesson on greatness? It's weird. It's hard to see any uh, connection to the lesson at all. Let me unpack this a little bit. Um, in our culture, little babies are considered adorable right? 
In fact, many of us can't stop talking about how cute babies are. That's a good thing. Babies are precious. But in the culture that Jesus was teaching in, babies were considered of very little value. Some estimate that over a third of babies died before they reached the age of one. So the infant mortality rate was very high back in those days. And because of that, until a person reached a sufficient age of maturity, children and babies were considered, unfortunately, of very little value. See, babies, I'm sure parents would know this, they require an enormous amount of attention. And at least at that point, they don't seem to give very little in return, except maybe pee themselves or poo themselves. See, see uh, the point of it is great Christians uh, associate with and help out people who do not benefit them in a noticeable way. I think very often, almost instinctively for us, we tend to gravitate toward people that benefit us. Whether it is being uh, by knowing the guy who is known and then boosting our reputation because we're friends with you know, that person, or whether it's helping out a person that we know deep down will benefit us and help us out in the future. I think there's an episode of um, The Office uh, that illustrates this point quite well. Um, there's a scene in one of the episodes uh, where the character known as Dwight, uh, he uh, buys bagels uh, for everyone in the office. Maybe you know uh, which scene I'm talking about. Uh, he buys a he buys like a really nice New York bagel. And, and every time he would hand out a bagel to uh, a coworker, he'd say, don't mention it you owe me one. And the whole episode is basically him. Uh, it's, it's running that particular uh, issue. And he eventually meets his match with another character named Andy, uh, who tries to one-up him by doing something for Dwight after he gives him a bagel. And then Dwight something does something nice for Andy. And then Andy does something nice for Dwight. And that's pretty much the episode. It's pretty funny. You should watch it. Um, and I think oftentimes we operate like this. If not intentionally, then maybe perhaps subconsciously. I know I do. We tend to help people, serve people, that will end up serving us. But see, here's the point. Jesus takes an infant child in his arms and tells the disciple, uh, disciples, uh, welcome other people as you would embrace this little child. This child might not benefit you personally in any way. You might not get anything out of it except one very important thing. He says, you welcoming people who don't benefit you is proof that you have welcomed me into your life. That's one big thing, isn't it? I mean, true greatness can be measured by how I see others. Do I see them as a means to an end? Or do I see them as an opportunity to genuinely help just for the sake of helping? Now, let's... Uh, move on to the second example Jesus uses. He builds on this lesson uh, uh, about how the greatest of people aren't concerned about how they might ultimately benefit them. But this time he gives an example of what not to do. So before it was a positive, now it's negative. Okay. Even though our in initial instinct is maybe to perhaps criticize John, I would actually argue that his attitude is not all that different from what we are tempted to do as people. See, in this story, John, 
hears about this other person doing all these good things for Jesus, but he gets angry at them. He tells them off and, st- and tells them to stop doing it. See, in the same way, are we quick to celebrate the Lord's work in other church communities? Or are we quick to question whether the fruit of that church is real or genuine? See, there are many churches and many Christian communities in Sydney. And there are many churches and Christian communities in Sydney that do not necessarily agree with everything that we as a church believe in. That does not do church in the same way that we think is the best way to do it. But are also loving Jesus and are also changing lives for the kingdom. I do have to say, as long as we share in the essentials of the faith, that faith alone saves through grace alone, in Christ alone, as long as this uh, alternate, alternate, um, this different church community believes in the Bible, we should be careful to criticize and talk badly about other churches and Christians, because that's what John is effectively uh, doing here. You see, there are fundamental doctrinal issues that churches hold that are black and white. I'll give you an example. If, if a church says that Jesus is not God, well, you know, they, they really aren't doing whatever they, they are doing in the name of Jesus. But there are so many other things that we can agree to disagree on. If they think differently about whether to baptize babies or not, whether they believe in the, the doctrine of uh, predestination, uh, the role of men and women in the church, whether to sing or not sing certain songs. I mean, all of these things aren't unimportant, and we do have to know where we stand in that debate. But they cannot be the reason why we don't celebrate the kingdom contribution. See, truly great Christians see other Christians as co-workers in the gospel, not as competitors. I believe with all my heart that Kingsway is a great church. But I also believe that there are so many other great churches in Sydney. Jesus teaches us that how we relate to other Christians uh, outside our immediate community also demonstrates the level of our greatness in the kingdom. Friends, we are called to celebrate others, not criticize. Brothers and sisters, I know that all of us want to live a life of significance. I know that all of us want to make a difference. I know that all of us want to be the best version of ourselves that we can be. So Jesus gives us lesson number two in how we can do this. And let me frame it in a question. How do I relate to other people? How do I relate to other people? How do I relate to those that do not benefit me when I help them? Am I less likely to help them? Well, truly great people don't care. They help regardless, because to them, it is the same as serving Jesus. How do I relate to people who I don't know and see them succeed, especially in the Christian context? Is suspicion and criticism my first reaction, or is it joy and celebration? Let's move on to the first uh, third point. This is in verses uh, 42 to 50. Finally, Jesus teaches the disciples the third lesson. But again, from the outset, it doesn't seem all that related to the topic in question. See, if you read this, you would be thinking to yourself probably, uh, why does Jesus start to go on about sin here? It's a bit weird. Isn't he talking about how his disciples can properly understand greatness? Why does Jesus give a scary warning about, you know, tying a stone around someone's neck and dropping them into the sea if, 
that person causes another person to sin, right? It's pretty graphic. I mean, speaking of graphic imagery, why the image of, you know, cutting your hands and feet and gouging your eyes out um, if they cause you to sin? That's a bit weird. And, and then finally, to cap it off, he goes, he talks about hell. Why the fire and sulfur talk? It's weird. Weren't the disciples just bickering about who is the greatest? See, this point, uh, unless it's probably the most hard-hitting of the three, the reason why Jesus uses such vivid and violent language is because he is pointing out the seriousness of the issue at hand. This, this story and uh, all the verses that preceded it, they're, they're not unlinked. They're linked. You know, this, this is a third lesson on greatness. When it comes to greatness, how do I see the issue? Do I see it as important? And essential for me or is it optional is it an afterthought it's a good word for other people perhaps but not necessarily for me this is what jesus is saying here neglecting to associate with and welcome people that do not personally benefit benefit us like the newborn child in this example is a terrible offense that it merits a terrible punishment it's in verse 42 you know, the issue of fighting to be great in the right way is to be taken as seriously as cutting off the hand that causes me to sin. Of course, Jesus is not talking literally here. He's using a graphic example to make a real life point. The question that he's trying to ask the disciples and the question that I believe he's trying to ask us today is if there is any part of your life that you are unable to avoid and beat the temptation to think of yourselves more than other people, in that circumstance, Jesus is saying, it is better to cut that out of your life. Why? So that you can think of other people more, so that you can be great in the kingdom. Now, this applies differently for every individual. All of us are wired and gifted differently. God has blessed us to have high tolerance rates for certain situations and low tolerance rates for other situations. Some of us can handle the pressures of life in whatever industry we're working in. And we can, by God's kindness, beat the temptation to become self-centered and self-oriented. That's a great thing. But to others who aren't, Jesus speaks to you. How far will you go to be great in the kingdom? Will you cut off the chance to be great in the eyes of the world so that you can be great in the eyes of Jesus? Straight out of the gate, I am not saying, nor I don't think Jesus is saying that we should all quit our jobs and become monks. I'm simply saying that if it comes to a point where because of our career aspirations, we find ourselves thinking too much of me and not enough of others and serving others, it is in that moment a choice is given to us. Will I embrace my me version of greatness or will I embrace the Jesus version of greatness and take major steps to make sure it happens? For some of us, the challenge might not be uh, self-status in our career and life. It might be with the amount of money we make. And there's something that I want to uh, just, just touch on a little bit. Money and wealth can be used by God in the hands of faithful saints uh, in a great and impactful way. We need rich people in the kingdom. It can be used for good in serving other people 
again, that, that, I mean, that's in fact a key point in Jesus's lesson on greatness, right? We help other people. But the Bible talks too often about money and wealth for me to ignore this. Money and wealth attracts a deep temptation to think that we are better than others who don't earn as much. That's what money tends to do. To think that our privilege is deserved. To think that others who aren't in the same tax bracket, although very few of us would actually say it, aren't really worth our time and attention. You know, issues of status and wealth and pursuing greatness in the career, these are sensitive topics. They really are. Because it's all about motivation here, right? Just because you see someone who is rich can't say that they're sin. It's all about what's in the heart. So it is very sensitive. So you'd think that for such a sensitive issue, Jesus would be sensitive to it. But it's in fact quite the opposite here. He uses vivid and, and graphic imagery to kickstart and question conviction in the disciples. And I believe in some of us here today. Jesus wants us to be great. All of us were born to be significant. Let me make that clear. All of us were born to be significant. We were born in the image of God. God has a plan for each and every one of us to make a difference in this world, to make our lives count. That is true. And that is why Jesus wants to bring out true greatness in all of us at the cost of all other counterfeit, fake definitions of greatness that the world throws our way. He calls us to that, brothers and sisters, because there is a better kind of greatness in his kingdom. A greatness that is measured by a freedom from measuring up to whatever external measurement that the world has placed on the success scale. A greatness that is measured by the way we seek to help, love, and serve other people. I think, if anything, from this point, we should get this. Uh, it, it would be foolish for us to hear these words from Jesus, these vivid and even violent images of cutting sin and temptation out of our lives, and not be challenged by the status quo of our personal pursuit of greatness. It's not an optional task for Christians. This pursuit of greatness is not simply left to the super faithful and most radical of, of, of us as followers of Jesus. It is for every follower of Jesus to seek greatness by thinking of ourselves, are thinking less of ourselves and more about others, to consider ourselves last among us, to serve all those around us. I started off by uh, talking about my chat with my mom. And as I prepared this talk, uh, I began to realize that the issue wasn't so much about my mom wanting me to be a world famous, influential pastor. I mean, to be sure, true greatness is not about the number of people at our church. It's not about how many people like my sermons. As I prepared this talk, I realized well, true greatness for me, according to Jesus, is not about me. I mean, in God's kindness, he might very well bless our church with amazing opportunities to witness to thousands of people. And that is still my hope and prayer. I still hope and pray that through our efforts, many would come to know Jesus. But the point is not so that I would be known as the person to do, or Paul or Peter or any one of us. The point of true greatness is if our church earnestly, genuinely, as a community, wants to serve and help and love other people. If we do that, then our church, in the eyes of God, which 
is the only opinion that matters, honestly, is truly a great church. So to sum up, here are the three lessons that Jesus teaches us about true greatness. And I'll frame it in three questions to ask ourselves in our breakout rooms. Number one, how do I see myself? Number two, how do I see others? And number three, how do I see the issue? True greatness in the eyes of Jesus is seeing myself less, not being caught up in building my own personal kingdom, not being obsessed with how well I measure up compared to other people. I mean, if I can get that in my life, that it's not about me, that I am to be considered last, then paradoxically, I am among the first. True greatness is seeing others, even though uh, even those that do not benefit me, even those that are not part of my family, my immediate community, and seeking to love, serve, and help them without thought of how, might, how it might benefit me. And in all of this, how do I see this actual issue? It is a serious, essential part of my Christian faith. Jesus cares a lot about it, and I should care about it too, and do whatever needs to be done so that I'm running after the right kind of greatness at the cost of all the others.